0: So, we've been here together now for pretty much a whole day, maybe a little longer, engaging in this practice of meditation. And I'd like to speak this evening with regard to some of the really important areas of understanding that we have the opportunity to explore through this practice. In the Dharma teachings, there's a kind of a basic framework of understanding that, that recognizes the degree to which, significant degree to which, we don't always see with accuracy, with clarity, with real comprehension, the nature of experience. We tend to very easily misunderstand what's happening. And that process of misunderstanding, of not understanding, when we act from that not clear, lack of clear seeing or from not really fully having penetrated the nature of our experience, we tend to find ourselves colliding with it. We are in conflict with, rather than in harmony with the way things are. And... That's pretty much inevitable if we can't, or if we aren't really able to see the way things are, with some degree of clarity. This the, the Buddha spoke of as, as blindness. Sometimes it's translated as ignorance, and the word is avidya, which actually has its root in vid, vid, same as video, to see, and a Avid, not to not see, it's a negation. It's an avidya, to not see. And much of the suffering that we can experience in life is amplified by the way we may at times judge or blame ourselves for the fact that we find ourselves in these situations, these struggles, these conflicts, these painful and difficult circumstances. And we don't always feel we know how to handle them very well, though we're supposed to be grown-ups, and we should know. It seems. So reflecting on the process that we're in, that we can sort of focus particularly on this retreat, but equally we can look at our lives. And it's a process of, of learning, of coming to understand what's really useful, what's actually helpful for us in life. And there's, a, I think, a, a story that I find useful with regard to this to, Help us understand how this happens, and it uh, involves a, a long term student of Zen meditation who has a very um, precious opportunity to meet with the grand master of his tradition, the highest and most senior teacher in his um, lineage, and the the student has the opportunity just to ask a couple of questions, maybe three. It's a, just a short interview, so. Teacher's time is in great demand. And so coming along, he asks the teacher, he comes and bows, he says, you know, and he says, Can you tell me what's the most important thing to develop in my life? And the Zen master looks at him. He says, Good judgment. The student says, Oh, thank you, thank you. Ah, uh, Can you tell me, how do I develop good judgment? Zen master looks at him and says, Hmm, experience. Thank you, of course, of course I should have known that. How do I develop, how do I get experience? Hmm, bad judgment. (laughs) (laughs) And I find the story... Apart from its humanity, very uplifting because it it kind of frames the whole process, doesn't it? Even the bits where we're messing it up and getting it wrong are required parts of learning how to actually live skillfully. And it's really helpful to not be hard on ourselves when we're in the, you know, the getting experience phase rather than getting to enjoy the, the benefits of that experience which seems comes later. So we're here practicing paying attention, learning to be attentive, learning to open, starting to notice the tendencies and the habits we have of disconnecting from our experience because it's not what we want it to be or it's maybe not quite fitting in with our idea of how we think it should be. And all these ways in which we kind of withdraw from, disconnect from or bounce off the experience and the encouragement again and again in many different ways from Kirsten and myself is really to reconnect, to re-engage, to open to this, to really let ourselves look at, see, feel what it's like to be here, this human existence, this human experience and what is it showing to us? Because for the most part our minds tend to skip very quickly around from one thing to another. And we've seen that, we notice that here when we're practicing, how quickly the mind goes here, there, there, here. Ding 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 ding. I want this, it goes there, don't like it that much, I'll try something else. Doom 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 doom. And one of the results of our mind moving like that is that it doesn't really stay anywhere long enough to see what's going on. We're too quickly reacting to one thing, chasing another thing, so we don't really see what's going on. And we need to see what's going on. Really we need this all of us and we tend to find ourselves forming views, judgments, perceptions, conclusions based on very minimal experience or very not minimal experience minimal contact with the experience it's like we just form a first impression and then we act on it very quickly and we repeat this again and again and and often it leads to suffering when we live in this way. So there's a story I'd like to share, which for me had a lot to say about what happens in this process. And I'd been sitting in meditation early one morning, and it was a a cold, frosty February morning. And um, having finished my period of practice, I just opened my eyes and looked out towards the window in front of myself. And uh, there on the window I saw this little snail and I was just immediately interested in the snail, and my mind started to kick in as minds do, and it sort of, oh, it's a snail. Oh gosh, how did it get in here? And what's it doing here? And and immediately I thought, oh, well, I know how it got in here because the window's open. That's so it came in through the window, and the window's open because even though it was very cold, the window's open because it had the paint had been peeling, and it had been getting water into it and starting to rot. So I had to tr- trim it with a plane. And then repaint it. And then, because the paint was fresh, I couldn't close the window. So, you now, it takes about a moment for the mind to think all those thoughts. Got it. Ah, that's how it got in here. But why did it come in here? I think, oh, it's really cold out there. You don't normally see s- snails in the middle of winter in the frost. It's probably going to freeze if it stays out there. No wonder it came in here, I thought. And then, but if it comes in here, there's nothing to eat. It's going to starve. And I was immediately concerned for this little creature. And while these thoughts were coming through in my mind, I was looking at its little beady eyes on stalks, just waving around, and admiring the delicate intricacy of the spiral pattern on its shell. It was about, you know, I guess five or six feet in front of me, maybe a little more, maybe eight feet, I can't remember now. And I was thinking, what can I do? If it stays here, it's going to starve. If I put it back outside, it's going to freeze. How can I help? And then I suddenly thought, my neighbour's greenhouse. I can put it in the greenhouse. Nice and warm, plenty of food. It didn't occur to me in that moment what my neighbour might think about that. It just seemed like, oh, solution. I was so happy. I was so happy. I got up from my cushion. I reached out towards the snail, which turned out to be a wood shaving. (laughs) Curled in a little spiral with a couple of little loose bits on the end. And in the moment I realised it was a a wood shaving, not a snail. Something just phew, collapsed. This whole process. That I'd been concerned about it. I'd been worried for it. I'd actually solved its problems. I thought. And it never existed in the way that I imagined it to. Something for me very significant in that. And the way we can maybe perceive a problem in life that maybe isn't there in the way we think it is. And that if we look a little more carefully we might begin to see how it is that that is so. So this meditation practice is one in which we we learn to settle and sink in a little more deeply into the experience, to stay there, or to return, to come back again and again. Because as we start to do that, we start to see more clearly what's going on. And there are lots of levels at which we do this. We do this in terms of understanding our particular patterns, the things that push and pull us, what it is that scares us, or that irritates us, or that that excites us starting to get a sense of what those things are, because we all have them. They might be different for each of us, but we all have them. And we start to notice what they are as we pay attention. If Rather than thinking, I shouldn't have them, or I don't like them, or how do I get rid of them, we just are willing to meet them, to meet ourselves in those places, however we show up. And what we also start to notice is that there are certain patterns or characteristics of all experience which are universal, that also stand out to us over time as we practice. And understanding these elements, both the the particularities of how we in our specific individual and unique makeup, how we kind of tick, what makes us smile and what makes us you know, cringe, all of that, getting to know that, and equally getting to know what's more universal, starting to see the basic principles or sort of ways things are, starting to see the way things are. As we do this, we become able to live more in accordance with the truth of things and respond skillfully to it. And in doing so, we are able to transform the experience of life from one in which there seems to be a degree of suffering that's at times overwhelming and incomprehensible into something that's actually workable, that we start to understand how to move with it how to be in harmony with it. It just doesn't mean there aren't still challenges, but that the experience nonetheless shifts profoundly. And some of you have experienced, even in this day of practice together and spoken about in the small groups, just noticing how things shift. Is sometimes our tendency to struggle with an experience starts to drop, and we might still not like the difficult experience, but we can just let it be there, and we realize, oh, it's a lot less difficult when we're not actually battling it. That sort of thing. We start to say, huh, that's possible in all moments. Doesn't mean we can do it in every moment, but the possibility is there. And the Buddha spoke many times, again and again in fact, about three major, sort of in a way classic misperceptions, mistakes, misunderstandings that we tend to labour under in our lives, that tend to Configure significant, profound, and perhaps predominant amounts of the suffering, the struggle that we encounter or experience in life. And so I'd like to reflect on these a little because you may, in different ways, have been encountering them today in some form or another. When we don't understand the way things are, we tend to struggle with life. When we understand it, in fact, we come into a different relationship with experience, with life. And that's really what transforms our life. Not necessarily that the experiences are different, but that our understanding of them and our relationship to them begins to change. So the first misperception that the Buddha spoke of, and he spoke about it again and again and again, is the way we have the tendency to see things as being permanent, when they're not permanent. Just imagine things are unchanging when in fact they're constantly changing. And it's really interesting, this one, because we all know that things change. No one, <laughs> even a school child, you know, a junior school child, or, would know if you ask them, do things always stay the same? they say, no. And we know this. But so often we find ourselves acting and living as if we don't know that. We find ourselves in a sitting either struggling with an experience because we're we're not sure how it will be if my knee hurts all day. Can I cope with that? Or if my mind is as busy as it is now by the evening, how will I cope with that? We struggle with the experience. And in the struggle, there's an unconscious assumption or fear that this is going to continue. Maybe it's going to continue forever unless I do something about it. We get busy trying to do something about it. And yet, if we were to know truly and deeply that things change, all things change, we wouldn't need to try and get rid of things that we found ourselves struggling with. Because we'd know they would change by themselves, inevitably. Sometimes, you know, we come on retreat and we sort of settle in. Actually, it's quite enjoyable. It's going well. and It's like, oh, nice and we start ourselves sort of imagining this sort of meditative career where we're going to sort of we're going to go and do a 3 month retreat and then maybe we'll become a nun or a monk and we have these sort of images of sitting in a cave filled with light and bliss on the basis that the meditation was kind of pleasurable for a few moments and of course in the next moment and you see we've projected this continuity onto our experience and started to fantasize about what it would be like and in the next moment we realize oh my gosh two moments of mindfulness and there I was lost in my stories full of all this grandiose sort of fantasy and we feel really rubbish or miserable and we think oh I'm always going to be like this this is never going to change and we're doing the same thing we're doing a moment of fantasy or reactivity and suddenly that's the totality of it but that too changes that too changes so so what we're asked to do is notice that things change. If we don't stay there long enough, we never stay long enough in one place to look at it and see, well, if I stay with this, what happens? Mostly we go looking for something more interesting or different or figure out if it's something we like, how we're going to keep it. We don't just stay with it. And if we did, whether difficult, neutral or delightful, we would see that it's changing even in the very moment we meet it. It's already shifting. Changing. It's a little more, a little less, a little different than it was, and that's ongoing. So here we can watch that. We can see it, and perhaps sometimes we can get a sense of that. That yeah, things are changing. There's a there's a beautiful passage from the from the Diamond Sutra, one of the uh, sort of much loved teachings of the the northern, the later, the Mahayana schools of of, of Buddhist um, teaching and practice, and it it. There's a stanza in it that I find very powerful and evocative. It goes like this It says, Thus you should look upon this fleeting world a drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. You just hear that kind of flow of different images of these evanescent momentary experiences. A drop of dew a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lantern, a phantom, and a dream. And just, thum thum. And if we look, that's how our experience is, a sight, a sound, a thought, a feeling, flowing, moving, morphing, dissolving and appearing, as they do. And seeing that it just just brings a certain coolness, a certain relaxing, a certain, oh, maybe I don't need to hold on to this so tight. Maybe I can allow this to move. And that doesn't mean we're trying to get distant from it. It's not like we're trying to back off from our experience here and somehow get away from it or be unengaged with it. And I think really useful advice is expressed in the the poem by William Blake. He says, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives on. In eternity's sunrise. It's a beautiful poem, amazing. It's sort of so much of the Dharma teachings just there, so much more concisely than I could ever manage. And we see that sense he who binds himself to the joy does the winged life destroy. If we grasp hold of things that we like, that we're touched by, that are beautiful, we squeeze the life out of them. There's no juice left in it because our grasping is born of fear. We can't enjoy it when we're afraid that we're going to lose it, and there is no point in being afraid we're going to lose it because the fear of it doesn't actually affect the fact that, of course, at some point it will change. But while it's here, we can receive it rather than worry about how to keep it. Huh? And so quickly we get so we're so quickly worried about how to keep it. We don't get to enjoy it. It's tragic. It's like you know, you see a beautiful uh, classic version way this shows up. We see something beautiful, we get our camera out. We get annoyed that we can't get a good shot of it, or we feel annoyed that we didn't bring our camera. And we can't enjoy the nice view. Sad, isn't it? But we can do that. I can do that. And it's like, okay, I don't need to take this home with me and show my friends how good this was. How about if I just enjoy it? Huh, lovely view. You know, take the photograph with our heart rather than on a sort of digital screen. And that sense of to kiss the joy as it flies, to make intimate contact with something that's moving through. It's not about holding back, it's like making contact. Intimacy with our experience is to live in eternity's sunrise. It's like there's something, the dawn of the timeless is revealed. Eternity sunrise is the dawn of the timeless is revealed in that momentary, instantaneous, intimate connecting with something that may touch our hearts. So seeing change doesn't mean pushing away or being distant from. It means understanding. Things move. We can let them move. We can meet them. We can make space for that which is difficult. We can allow ourselves to be touched by that which is sweet and beautiful. And we need to be open to that both and to see that it's not in our control these experiences come and go we can't bring them forth every time we want them, we can't keep them nor can sometimes we stop them or bring them to an end but we can learn to meet them in a way as Blake says she who binds herself to a joy does the winged life destroy She who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. So learning here to touch intimately, without binding. And in that touch and not binding ourselves to experience, actually the boundness of our life starts to open up. When we try to bind ourselves to an experience, it's only we who become bound. So here we learn to see that process of taking hold and just learn to let go. We don't judge it, we don't have to blame it. This is part of the learning experience of the Zen Master story. We see where we take hold, we begin to let go. We see where we start to kind of tighten up, we become fluid again. And becoming fluid, we accord with the fluidity of life, the movement, the change. When we try and hold things, we become rigid or tight, and we feel the tension from that holding in our bodies and in our minds and in our hearts. Then, because we're rigid and life is fluid, we keep kind of banging in to it, rather than moving with it, or feeling out of touch with it, because it's flowing and we're trying to stand still. So the second characteristic that the Buddha spoke about that or the second misperception that the Buddha pointed out to us of experience is that things in and of themselves don't give us lasting satisfaction. Because they don't stay forever, nothing can do that for us. And yet we tend to relate to things this is the misunderstanding, things that cannot give us lasting satisfaction as if they could. And we only have to think how many times our mind has said, if only I had this, then things would be great. If only my mind would be quiet, then I'd feel great. If only my knee would stop hurting, then I could really meditate. You know, If only the meditation would end now, <laughs> then I'd feel okay. And it's like putting onto these conditions, these circumstances, somehow the capacity to either provide our absolute fulfillment or to completely bar our access to that fulfillment. Seeing things as having the capacity to determine our sense of happiness and well-being in some absolute way. We give them that weight, that power. And yet, because they're changing, they can't give us lasting satisfaction. Things can't do that for us. They don't do that for us. Now, probably, we all have some good sense of that. You wouldn't be coming in. It's not like you get to have a lot of things here, is it? You know, um, you can't really go shopping at a retreat. Maybe you can go you know, shopping amongst the toothbrushes. Isn't that exciting, is it? You know, I could have a red one or a blue one. Mm. And It's not quite sort of consumer paradise. And yet we can easily get into the sense of, rather than looking for material things, which we, we see aren't so much what it's really all about, we can be looking for inner experiences in the same way. Like, I, I want to have some experience of being calm or feeling really connected or or very sort of, sort of alive. Because I don't want to feel heavy and dead or dull or drowsy. I don't want to feel confused or reactive or busy. I want to feel spacious and calm. And those inner experiences, we also say, if I get some more of those, then it's going to be great. And if I have any more of those, it's going to be really difficult and horrible, so I, I don't want that. That whole way of relating to inner experience is just a more subtle version of what we do to outer things like you know, jobs and cars and homes and relationships and all of that. And of course, all those things have their place. And it's appropriate that we so far as we're able, you know, take care of those worldly things. There's nothing wrong with that or unspiritual about that. It's necessary. It's part of living in this world. And it's equally important and right that we we do work with our inner experiences to cultivate what is wholesome, is useful, is beneficial, in terms of qualities of heart and mind. And we're doing that here. We're cultivating qualities of attentiveness, of mindfulness, of a, a sensitivity, an openness, a kindliness. Just in allowing things to be, there's a kindliness. And all of that, we are engaging in this way. But not to make the mistake of imagining that somehow if we get it just so, that's going to be, ah, perfect, all right, happy from ever after. Because any conditions that we can bring together and create but the very nature of them will also change into something else. And so they can't give us lasting satisfaction. This is a tricky one. Because it could lead to a sense of, oh gosh, it's all a bit miserable and hopeless, then, isn't it? I heard I kind of heard Buddhist teaching was a bit like that sometimes, you know. What am I doing here? I should have gone to a Sufi dancing weekend, you know. <laughs> Much more fun. At least all the guys are smiling, you know. And yet there's a relief that comes. There's a, ha! Huh, if I don't have to look or try and get satisfaction in all these things, I don't have to fight with the world so much. I don't have to fight with my experience so much. This doesn't mean I don't take care of it, but I don't have to fight with it. And so there's this way of just letting go. Again, letting go. To not, again, not be hard on ourselves for seeing the way we do this. The way we set something up. If only it could be like this. Or if it only wasn't like this, then. That way we're projecting happiness, satisfaction, solution, resolution of our life onto a scenario that we're mostly imagining. Basically, mostly imagining. Because if this strategy, if this way of doing things worked, we'd have got there by now, we'd have got it all sorted out, we'd have made it the way we want it and it would have stayed that way and we'd be happy, we'd have moved on to something else. It doesn't work like that. And letting go, there can be sometimes a sorrow in that, but actually there's also a relief. And there's a remarkable amount of space that opens up as we begin to do that. Just, It's like we don't have to get somewhere else. Because that movement to kind of that projecting of satisfaction onto things and the need to organize them or keep them in a certain way or prevent them getting into a certain condition, that drives so much of this energy, this momentum of busyness, of stress, of pressure, because my whole life depends upon, it seems, we imagine, getting it together in the way it's supposed to be. or Getting ourselves together in the way I'm supposed to be. And coming here, this invitation and encouragement again, just step out of that. Put it down when you notice it happening. Or just let yourself experience it from a more sort of compassionate place to see the suffering of that, not judging it, but seeing we don't have to do that. And perhaps we begin to notice it and say, oh, oh, yeah, I can just be here a bit more fully. And the third misperception that the Buddha spoke about Is the tendency to see things as having some independent self existence, which they don't have. To see ourself as somehow separate and apart from everything around us in a way that isn't true or accurately describing what's happening here. All experiences arise, all things arise in relationship to conditions and circumstances which support them there are an infinite number of things that had to happen for you or for me or for anyone or anything that's here to be here in the case of you know human beings just you know starting with the fact we had to be conceived we had to grow we had to be fed we had to be you know, all those things had to happen long before we kind of got here in charge of this life, or so we like to think. And there's a a way in which we nonetheless seem to imagine or conceive and believe that I, over here, am somehow living an existence that is apart from the life and the circumstances and the existence that is all around me. That all these things are out there as somehow discrete, separate othernesses to me, which is over here, and I call myself. And we call other people their self. So we're asked to look at our experience, not to take some idea out of this. And sometimes we hear this kind of teaching and the view arises oh, so the Buddha says I don't have a self? Oh, okay, so I don't have a self. Hmm. We may be wondering a little bit what happened to the self I thought I had before, um, and what I'm supposed to do now that I don't have a self. It can be a little bit confusing. And it's really, that's not so helpful. What's useful is to look at the sense of me that we encounter, or the sense of you, or something, even this bell, as if we imagine this bell to be something particular by itself. and call it a bell. To look at what's going on there. What's actually happening here while that's going on? What we find in this life, this experience, is that we're experiencing, or there's this flow of experience unfolding of th- smell, taste, touch, sound, thought, taste, images, emotions, perceptions, all this goes on, and we kind of we're conscious of it, we're aware of it. It's what we call our life. And it's changing, as we said, it's it's something that's fluid, it's moving. And we have within it the sense of me, that it's me, somehow, in a way that is quite defined or narrow or tight, that we're quite concerned for and about, this, this me-ness. And yet if we just reflect on it, we see that it's changing, as I said. you know, This body's not the same as the body I had 10 years ago, or 20, let alone 30 or 40 or more. Okay, it's really different, and it's not just that it looks different, but actually the very cells and molecules that it was made up of have gone, and there's new ones turned up along the way. And this mind, it's different than it was. In some ways it seems to have sort of learned and grown, and in other ways it seems to, uh, you know, be regressing rapidly in terms of its functionality and memory, and uh, you know, all these things just keep changing. Our bodies and our minds. They're not as they were. They're not something we can make our own or define ourselves by. See, you know, this body, this mind, the one that you had before, it's gone. And the one that you will have in the future, it doesn't exist. It's not there waiting somewhere for you to get it out of the cupboard and, you know, climb into it and here we go. Another mind body. You know, it's not there. The only thing we have is this moment's experience. We can't find anything else. And the Buddha said, okay, so if this is what it's like to be existent, so it seems, look at this. You know, Look at the ideas we have, the stories we tell ourselves, the beliefs we have about who we are, the thoughts and feelings that they evoke about I'm like this, I'm not like that. The images we have based on our past experience. I'm successful. Or I'm actually not very successful. I'm a kindly person or I'm a bit of an angry person or whatever story we might tell about ourselves. There might be some accuracy in our perceptions in that, yeah, sometimes we show up like this. But equally at times we show up probably quite differently. And it's a little scary and shocking sometimes when I thought I was a nice guy and here I am being nasty to someone. How do I deal with that? Or actually I'm really good at things and I appear to have just really screwed something up really badly. How do we handle that? Sometimes it goes the other way and it's like I don't think I'm very good at things and something's going well and I'm really not sure that's okay. Or you know, because it scares me. I'm supposed to not do well at things, and here am I doing well. Maybe I better mess it up, you know? It's like the experience of reflecting on who we imagine ourselves to be. Can be both embarrassing and humorous and remarkably liberating, noticing you know the images we have of ourselves based on our roles, you know that we're the teacher or the student or the, the wise one or the fool or the, the ways that we show up, you know it's totally conditional if you were all to get up now and start singing and dancing, the teacher wouldn't be sitting here. it would just be some guy talking, looking kind of silly, yeah, really. It's like there's no teacher that I am here. It's just teaching is happening because studenting is happening. And you're not students anymore. Some of you are teachers. In another situation, you're sharing your wisdom and understanding, either in a formal role or just an informal setting. We're not one thing or the other in that way, but we get fixed into it and then we think, oh, well, the teacher should know. Well, they must know. I hope they know. You know, and well, I'm the student. I don't know. Who says that? Who's to believe that that's so? The wisdom that we're seeking is in all of us here. And actually, it's that wisdom that's bringing us to look, to see, to understand what it is. It's already here in our interest to know and understand more deeply. Our stories about past and future, I was like this, I will be like that. The stories, they're not really who we are. They don't capture the vitality, the aliveness, the diversity, the universality and the uniqueness of our existence. They can't, they don't. And what's interesting is that as we're here together in silence and we're not exchanging our stories with each other in the way we socially usually do, where we get to say, I'm like this, I've done that, I didn't like that, I do like those, what about you? And you know, we hear what they do and what they like and what they don't like and what they think. When we relate on that level, there's often something that feels lacking. It can be lovely too, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but there can often be a feeling of not really meeting at a deeper level. We can feel the lack of that, and yet here where we actually don 't know each other hardly at all we haven 't you know been introduced we don 't know where we come from uh, each other, but sometimes just in being together, we start to feel something else qualitative about just the presence, the aliveness, the just the the beauty and nobility of someone you know doing the walking meditation because we know how hard it is to keep doing that totally useless, stupid thing called walking. Which gets us nowhere and seems pointless, and must look really daft from anyone driving down the road, you know. And yet, someone's doing it. We get, we can feel touched by it and inspired to, oh yeah, okay, I'll do some of that too. You now, all this can go on here, so many different ways. And reflecting, seeing how, huh? Okay. If I look there's this sense of me that arises and sure that's an experience that's real we're not saying that that's not real in the sense of this feeling of me arises yeah and it's useful actually because you know it's really helpful at lunchtime to know that I should be sticking the spoon in this mouth not in the mouth across the table from me because if I get that confused it gets really messy you know there's a validity to that there's a functionality to that you know it's really important In all sorts of ways. And yet, in another way, that's just a part of the picture. It's like it's also really clear and obvious that um, with my hand, you know, I shouldn't try and put my shoe on it. Or if I do, it doesn't really work that well. It doesn't help me use my hand. It doesn't actually help me walk anywhere, you know? So we know there's a functionality here. The hand does this kind of thing. If I try and put a pen between my toes and make some notes, I'm not going to get very far. So I understand those sort of things, and yet the hand and the foot, they're all part of the same thing. They're all part of the same thing. And yet we can talk about it, like me and you, or my hand and my foot, and imagine that they're different things. But where does this one stop? Hand? Foot? Where is it? It doesn't. It's connected. It's not separate from. And likewise, we're sitting here breathing together, being together. Maybe waking up together. And the very oxygen that we're breathing in, drawn out of trees, is being breathed into our lungs. It's quite quite a nice thought for me, that one. But also we're breathing in some of the carbon dioxide that our neighbours have just breathed out. Sometimes that's not quite such a pleasant thought. We're also breathing in some of the oxygen that they took into their lungs but didn't use. And that's kind of, well, that's kind of generous of them, actually. We could reflect in many different ways around this. But those molecules get into our very bodies. And yet we somehow imagine that we're separate from each other. Separate from this world. And so much of it comes in the way we think about. We tell ourselves stories. And those stories, because of the way language works, tend to say this is this and this is that. Black and white. Left and right. Me and you. This and that. Self and other. Us and them human beings and the natural world, as if the natural world was something different, or as if we weren't natural creatures, beings, part of the natural world, which we are. We can feel so lost or alienated when we imagine what's around us as something different than what's here. But fundamentally, there is nothing different than this. Just packaged a little differently. And that's why when we don't pay careful attention, we kind of react to the surface impression. We not only struggle with experience, we not only fight and seek to try and get hold of or control or manipulate it, but we experience a profound sense of alienation and isolation, of disconnectedness, and it's deeply painful to us. That's often the underlying suffering, which we're trying to address by trying to get things sorted out, fix the world or fix ourselves. It doesn't work. It doesn't get there, because it doesn't go to the heart of what's going on. We only go there if we allow ourselves to see what's happening, to feel both what can be the sorrow or the grief in that. And, you know, it's natural that sometimes we feel sorrow or grief. Those beings and situations that we love change or pass on. Our own health may leave us, and our very existence at at some time will come to an end. All this is part of life. And the Buddha invited us to reflect on it. And yet to see that if we identify with a particular part of life, then there's a way in which we we get bound to this process of birth and death. And that bondage to the process of birth and death is not obligatory. It's not that we can escape from the process of birth and death, but we don't need to be bound to it or by it. So what might it be to look upon our experience with the, the sense or the possibility that maybe there's something more here to discover? There's something to understand through entering wholeheartedly into this that we call life. That is this, life makes it sound like it's something. It's this ongoing process of conscious aliveness. Now, admittedly sometimes it's not that conscious, but uh, we're working on it. That's our practice, trying to become more fully conscious of what's happening in this. And sometimes we can just feel a shift of, of perception as we start to look more carefully, more deeply. There's a story I enjoy that expresses some of this. Um, When we learn to see in new ways, things change for us. And uh, there's a story of this great Chinese Taoist master who lived in a little cabin, a little hut, in fact, on a hill in the uh, sort of high hills near the mountains. And uh, this 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 great master was well known in the local villages, would come down and walk um now once a week, just begging for food and receiving whatever the villagers would offer, and taking the offerings back to the hut and would be up there practicing and engaging in meditation it seemed and one day a uh, a uh, a delegation from the the local town council came walking through the villages, just, just checking out to see how things were. And they heard about this, this this wise master. And they didn't actually think it was a very good idea that people were begging, begging, you know, not, not, not encouraged, but frowned upon. So they thought they'd go and have a word and, you know, see what was going on. And the master, she was sitting in her hut when they came. And they knocked on the door. Boom, boom, boom. She didn't respond. They knocked again. Boom, boom, boom. Still no response. So the leader of the delegation pushed the door open and barged in. And there she was, sitting in meditation. No clothes on. Completely naked. She looked up at them. They looked at her. What are you doing, said they. What are you doing? I want to know, what are you doing in this hut with no clothes on? And she looked at them, she said, You know, you think that's what's happening? From where I'm sitting, it's really different. Because from where I'm sitting, this whole world is my hut. From where I'm sitting, this hut is my clothes. What I want to know is what are you doing in my clothes? <laughs> what might it be to have that kind of vision? That's somewhat There's a certain <coughs> expansion. I don't know if you get the sense of that. It's kind of a humorous story, but it's also quite lovely, that sense of this whole world is my heart. It's like drawing the boundary somewhat more broadly, more expansively. We don't need to hold so tightly to the sense of ownership of what defines or what boundaries us, because that's what that story is about. about. Where do we draw the boundary here? If we draw the boundary a little more widely... The whole thing changes. The whole thing changes. This body, these thoughts, these feelings, this life that we inhabit, maybe it's not so limited, not so tightly bounded as we've imagined. Maybe what we are is not defined simply by just this physical structure, this emotional process, this psychological patterning, and this sort of thinking activity that's going on. Maybe there's more to it than that, more to it to discover. And so, in not taking that which is. which isn't really separate as being separate. Not making a sense of isolated self out of something that's related, that's connected, that's actually expansive rather than boundaried. In doing that, it's as a reflective process, we can just notice, okay, yeah, this does not define me. This feeling, this experience, we're not defined by this experience. Doesn't mean that it's somehow not our experience, or that it's somebody else's experience, or that we're somewhere not related or engaged with it. Because clearly, experience can be very significant and important. What's happening here, these thoughts and feelings. As I said right at the beginning, we need to understand how that works. And yet, we're not just that. We're not limited to that. There's more here than just that. And this is what we are invited to understand. To enter into what we could call perhaps a realm of vastness of openness, of unboundariedness, where the way our mind tends to separate, divide and disconnect is no longer given the authority or the stamp of being absolute. where We just see that as an activity that is sometimes useful and sometimes not. And we become really interested in what is it to be here? What is it to not define ourselves as being this or something else? It's not that we're saying we're something else than this, but nor are we just this. And so, this openness, this vastness, is something we might find a little uncomfortable or scary certain ways. And yet at the same time we might find it quite familiar and something that draws us. Because we recognize, we know something of it although it's fresh and immediate and always in that condition of freshness and immediacy even though remarkably familiar too. So what we're here to understand is not defined or limited by what we are or what we experience in terms of our human mind, body, heart activity. But nor is it apart from that. Nor is it somewhere else or something else than this. That's not something our minds can easily wrap themselves around. So it's not necessary to try and figure that out. But if we don't Take this stand or that. Where are we left? Because we're still here. We're still here. There isn't somewhere else to be. And so when we're not making experiences into something that we imagine our happiness, our well-being, our peace, our satisfaction, our freedom depends upon absolutely, we're not giving experiences that authority over us. We're not trying to build up or destroy the sense of self or identity that we have. We're not trying to get rid of it or make it into something. But we're just seeing it for what it is, which is a certain kind of functionality. It has its function and its limits, like most. What we can start to notice, what is so ordinary, that we actually just don't quite manage to notice it, unless we're really paying careful attention, unless we're really fully, wholeheartedly present. What is so familiar to us, so ordinary, that we don't quite see it. And yet, when we do, and to the degree that we do, we actually come to rest right where we are. Like a fish swimming frantically round in the water, looking for the ocean. At some point we realise... Oh, we're in this already. And just as the fish can't swim out of the ocean, we too cannot leave it. We're here. There is nowhere else. And yet, our journey is the process of learning and discovering what that means for ourselves in this place here, in this life here, what it means for our life and this life. And this is really a process of connecting and letting go, letting go and connecting again and again. And it's just this. As Ryo Khan once said Ryo was a Zen monk, lived in the 18th century, great poet and delightful spirit, and hermit. He said, Do you want to know what's been in my heart since before the beginning of time? Just this. Just this. So let's sit together, just as we are, for a few moments quietly. And so may we all in our practice here and in our lives see more deeply and through the appearances of surface things, to come to understand the nature of life and the way things are, and to know in our hearts the truth that is unbound. Unbound. To live in this world with care and compassion for ourselves and each other, for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings.